Could we, with ink, the ocean fill? Were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We all know the line of that famous hymn. But it was found penciled in the wall of a patient's room in an insane asylum after he was taken away and he had died. Some glorious words about the love of God. And yet the irony is that it's found in perhaps one of the darkest places on earth, in an insane asylum. You would think, in that kind of place, how could anybody see the love of God? How could anybody think about the love of God? But I submit to you that it is in the darkest of times that the love of God shines most brightly. It is against the backdrop of sin and misery that the love of God, like a perfectly cut diamond, is set before us, beaming with a thousand brilliant lights. And we have thought the past couple of weeks about the wrath of God, about the holiness of God. And these things have been hard to hear in many ways. I'm sure that it has humbled us. It has caused maybe us to fear, to tremble before a God of such glory, of such holiness, of such fearful wrath and fury against all evil. But I bring this message to you this evening on the goodness of God, particularly the love of God. Deliberately. Deliberately. Because it is against the backdrop of recognizing my total bankruptcy before a God of infinite holiness and my just desert, which is wrath and fury, when the Son of God will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God and recognizing that is what I deserve. And feeling, as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, the weight of his sin, the magnitude of his, of his miserable condition that he says, Woe is me! And it is when we grasp those things that we are able against the backdrop of our filth and God's perfect purity and our deserve, our just desert, which is hell, that we can understand perhaps something of the dazzling glory of the love of God. It is important for us that we speak about the holiness and the wrath of God 
But if we leave things there, we will fall into the error of the medieval church, much of it. Which, simply by the architecture of the cathedrals, you can feel the foreboding intimidation of a black, fearful, wrath-filled God who looks down on the heads of of these poor people who come and try to do enough to appease this God, and yet they know there's nothing I can do. I'm going to be lost unless I attain some sort of merit with this God. And what really was the impetus of the Reformation was something that Luther and others discovered, and it was something about the doctrine of God. And it was that God is gracious and that God is love. God is merciful. God forgives sin. And you see, when they grasp that, it set their hearts ablaze. You know why it set their hearts ablaze? Because for years and years and years and years and years, they felt the weight of their sin. They knew that God was holy. They knew that God would punish them for their sin. And so when they understood the gospel, the love of God, it set their hearts ablaze. And for us today, the love of God does not affect us the way it ought because we've cheapened the love of God by failing to preach clearly the holiness and wrath of God and the total bankruptcy and depravity of man. And if we leave that out, we cheapen the love of God. But against the backdrop of this holy and wrathful God against all evil, I want us to consider this evening the love of God. The love of God, which comes underneath His goodness. When we speak of His goodness, we speak of His love, His mercy, His grace, and His long-suffering. If you notice in the question in the Shorter Catechism, it has to do with God's attributes. His love is not mentioned. His goodness is mentioned. Because love comes underneath the umbrella of goodness. First, I want us to consider the objects of God's love. Who does or what does God love? Well, in the first place, the first object of God's love is Himself. The first object of God's love is Himself. And we have to put this in the context of a Trinitarian God. God is not a single person God whose love is merely inward and self-absorbing. The Father loves the Son the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Father, and etc., and etc. Love, you see, is fundamentally outward going. Love is extending from someone to something else. And the Father's loving and delighting in the Son. And the Son is outward going, loving the Spirit and the Father. We find this throughout the Scriptures. The Bible teaches us that the Son is the eternal 
object of the Father's love. In John 3 and verse 35, the Bible says, The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into His hand. And then the love of the Father is expressed in even more intimate terms. In John 5 and verse 20, For the Father loveth the Son. And this word loveth here is the Greek word that speaks of an intimate personal affection. The Father intimately, personally loves the Son and showeth Him all things that Himself doeth. And He will show Him greater works than this that ye may marvel. It's speaking of the fact that the Father's relationship to the Son is so intimate that He he discloses everything about Himself to the Son. He shows Him all His glory, all His purposes. Everything that the Father knows and is is disclosed to the Son. Because the Father so dearly loves the Son. The Son is the object of the Father's love. Because the Son is eternally begotten. Of the Father. For God to be God means that God is a Father begetting a Son. There's never a moment in eternity where the Son was begotten. He always has been flowing from the Father. And the Son is the exact image and representation of the Father. He is perfect. He is God. And so when the Father looks at the Son, He is moved with love and, and perfect delight because there's nothing in the Son that is not delightful. He's the eternal object of the Father's delight. A love that is more pure than you and I could ever imagine. The love the Father has for the Son. But the Scriptures also tell us that the Father loves the Spirit. John 15, 26 teaches us that the Spirit proceedeth from the Father. If it proceeds from the Father, the Spirit who is God, called God in Scripture multiple times, bears the same nature, the same perfections that the Father does. So the Father loves the Spirit. Scripture teaches us that the Son loves the Father. In John 14, verse 31, Jesus, speaking of His cross work, says, But that the world may know that I love the Father. That I love my Father. Again, this love that the Son has for the Father is beyond all description. It's an infinite, eternal love. It's a love that cannot be measured. Perfect love for His Father. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit also proceeds from the Son. It is called in Galatians 4 and verse 6, the Spirit of the Son. The Spirit is also perfect and glorious. It is a Spirit that the Son delights in. The Spirit that fell on the Lord Jesus Christ and His baptism. Jesus loves the Spirit, and then the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And the Trinity is a world of love. It is a world of perfect love, perfect delight, perfect harmony. And as I mentioned this morning, God is redeeming us so that we might have some experience of that perfect love that is in the Trinity itself. As John 17 and verse 21 says, Jesus says, 
I want you to know the love that's between me and my Father. So God preeminently loves himself because he's perfect and glorious and beautiful. But then God loves creation. After God created in Genesis 1 verse 31, he said, Behold, it was very good. It was very good. Psalm 104 verse 31, The Lord says, The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. If God rejoices in his works, and he's able to look at creation and say, It is very good. We can rest assured that he loves what he has made because it is his creation. It is his creation. Now, the statement in Genesis 1 is pre-fall. Yes, there are things now in creation. Sin has entered in, and God does not love the brokenness of his creation, but he loves his creation still because it is yet his creation. God loves has a general love for his creation. He loves the mountains. He loves the deep valleys. He loves the rolling hills. He loves the birds and the insects and the animals. He loves his creation. He's a warm-hearted God. And you see, the reason why he's called Father and he's revealed to us preeminently in the Son as Father, excuse me, when you think of Father, if you have the right kind of Father, You think of someone who is warm and loving. And God is a father deep down. And as a great father of his creation, he loves them all. He loves the animals. He loves the nature. He loves everything he's created. His smile falls across everything. The warm glow of his love, like the sun shining on his creation, falls on everything. God loves his creation. And among his creation are men. And men are the special objects of His love. Because men have been created in the image and likeness of God. They've been created like God. And without going into the details of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God, fundamentally, man is created in the image and likeness of God so that he can worship God and he can know something of the love of God himself. None of the rest of creation can. But man is created that way so that he might be satisfied in God in worshiping this God and in joining eternally with this trinity of love and experiencing this love and in worshiping this glorious God. And God loves men. God loves humans, human beings. And this comes home for us when we think about the question, does God have a desire that all would be saved? Yes. Yes. He has a general love and benevolence for all human beings. He desires that all would be saved. Yes. He is not less, less loving than you. He desires that. Now, it does not mean that He in grace will sovereignly move in pulling people who are running from Him 
out of sin and, and placing them in Christ. But he does desire and long that all would come to him. John Murray, a great theologian, wrote, There is a love of God that goes forth to lost men. There is a love of God that goes forth to lost men and is manifested in the manifold blessings which all men without distinction enjoy. A love in which non-elect persons are embraced and a love that comes to its highest expression in entreaties, overtures, and demands of gospel proclamation. So what John Maria is saying is that God loves the non-elect. And the highest manifestation of that love is when a gospel preacher stands and he says, Come to Jesus. Come. He wants you to be saved. That is the way God manifests His love even to the non-elect. Spurgeon said, Beloved, the benevolent love of Jesus is more extended than the lines of His electing love. That is not the love which beams resplendently upon His chosen, but it is true love. It is true love. For God so loved the world. The world. I don't like the exegesis personally of saying that's the world of the elect. I just don't see that in that passage. He loved the world. So, He sent His Son he loved His creation. He loved the world. He loved mankind so that He sent His Son. So that whosoever believeth, and yes, those that believe are only those whom He has chosen, that whosoever believeth on Him should be saved. But God's love extends far beyond His electing love. This benevolent love. Also, His love, the object of His love was Israel. A very special love he had for Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says that God had chosen Israel from out of all the other nations and had set his love upon them. And that was typical of the love wherewith he loves his spiritual Israel. And so, finally, his object, the object of his love is the elect. Ephesians 2 and verse 4 refers to this love as God's great love. But God who is rich in mercy for His great love. Different from the way He loves creation and the way He simply loves mankind or the way He loved Israel. He loves His elect with a great love. A great love. And I want us to consider what this great love is. So, Second, not only the objects of His love, but the nature of God's great love. The first place is the great love is free. It is free. There is nothing in the object of His love. There is nothing in the elect which engenders His love, which moves Him to love, which elicits His love. There is nothing in any of the chosen sons and daughters of God that moved God to set His love upon them. Nothing. In fact, in this same chapter, Paul refers to those whom God has set His great love upon as being dead in sins, walking according to the prince of the power of the air, 
children of disobedience, children of wrath. In the same chapter, wrath, children of wrath. But God loved those children of wrath with a great, great love. And that love was great because that love was free. Nothing moved him outside of his own heart, his own will. There is nothing outside of God that moved him to love. He loved purely out of a free and sovereign choice to set this special love on his people. And this is what is spoken of in Deuteronomy 7. Speaking of God's love for Israel, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all people that are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because ye were more in number. You could just say, he did not set his love upon you because you, period. Not because you. You anything. But because the Lord loved you. Why did you love me? Because I loved you. It was free. Free. Second, this love is constant. It's constant. It's an ever-flowing stream of love that never ebbs or flows. It never rages at certain points and then trickles at some. I used to live in Ohio and I had a creek behind my house. And when it would rain a lot, it would rage. The water would rush through the creek. And then when it would be a dry season, it would just trickle. But God's love for his elect is not like that. It's not that when we're doing really well, it's a rainy season. And he really loves us because we're doing really, really well. And so his love is rushing and raging through this stream bed. And he says, I love you because you're so good. No, his love is always raging. His love is constant. It's as if his love is an ocean. It's infinite, eternal. And it's like it's just wave upon wave crashing on us. It can never be exhausted. It can never grow. It can never lessen. It's a constant love. He loves always. And third, this love is indestructible. Romans 8 is a wonderful chapter about the love of God and especially the nature of the love of God. And Paul says in this glorious statement, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Verse 37, Nay, in all these things are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate me. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Reminds me of Isaiah 14 and verse 27. For the Lord of hosts 
hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? His hand is stretched out, who shall turn it back? He has stretched out His hand in love. He has said, I love you. And nothing can turn it back. Nothing can undo it. It is indestructible love. Brothers and sisters, that also means that your sin, your sin cannot separate you from the love of God. No matter how far you fall, no matter how messed up you find yourself, if you are a child of God, nothing can separate you from His love. And it means also that no matter what trial you're going through, no matter what hardship, that you look around you and you say, I don't see God's love anywhere. Nothing has separated you from His love. And nothing can separate you from His love. He is loving you. He is, and He loves you. It's striking when you think of what Peter did to the Lord Jesus. I mean, Peter was given such privileges, wasn't he? The Apostle Peter. And yet, what does he do when Jesus is is, is suffering? I mean, he's, he's being beaten. And what does Peter do? He's outside warming his hands by a fire. And he curses and denies his Savior. Not once, not twice, three times. I never knew him. I don't know. You can believe that. Here is Jesus. He's dying for Peter. And Peter is denying his Savior. But in John 21, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? But Peter never asked Jesus, do you love me? Because he knew he did. Even that kind of sin could not separate him from the love of his Savior. And when Jesus looked at Peter on that that fateful night, and Peter was broken and he wept, it wasn't a look of wrath. It was a look of love that pierced Peter's soul and broke his heart until it flowed out with tears. Nothing can separate us from the love of this God. He's so so loving. He's so tender. He's so gracious. But then finally, I want us to consider the demonstration of God's love to His people. The demonstration of God's love to His people in salvation. There are many different ways that God demonstrates His love. And we could be here for a very long time if we tried to think about all of them. So I want to take one aspect His love to His people in salvation. Love is never abstract. Love is always demonstrated in action. It always flows in action. Love is never just ethereal, just an idea. It always comes forth in something that is acted upon. So, God loves His people. We've seen that He loves His people. But how does He love His people? How does God love His people? In the first place, I want us to see how the Father loves His people. How does the Father love His people? He made a covenant 
with his son for them. You think about how God the Father looked at a sinful, fallen, broken, miserable race and could have very easily left them to their sin, glorified himself by demonstrating his power and his wrath. Romans 9 makes that clear. He could have very easily. But instead, he makes a covenant with his son, the Father, to redeem some out of this fallen race. And he chooses his own dear, beloved son. Remember the one who's the object of his delight? He chooses his son to be the redeemer. He chooses his son to become liable for their guilt. He chooses his son. And in a sense, as one said, it's almost as if he parts with his son that he might receive us. It's, it's in, that, in the depth of his love. He is willing. He is willing in this covenant to alienate his son that he might receive us. The Father chose us then. Ephesians 1 and verse 4 relegates the act of election to the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places according as he has chosen us. The Father chose us. And I want you to think about the very individual nature of that choosing. He didn't just choose a body that is not named. He chose you. I mean, the Father looked at you and he chose you. He knows your name. He, he, he knows everything about you. He knows what you look like. He, he, he knew what you look like. He, he knew everything you'd do. He knew everything you'd say. He knew everything you'd think. He knew everything about you. And he looked at you and he really loved you. I mean, he really loved you. When it says he set his love upon you, it's not a cold transaction as if God is love has love as a substance and he's saying, I'm setting it. No, it means God actually loves you. He loved you. And he chose you. You he chose to be his peculiar treasure, to be his son, to be his daughter to be with Him for eternity. And He chose you in Christ. He chose you in His Son knowing that His Son would brave the storm of God's wrath for you. Knowing that He would lift up, Jehovah would lift up His rod and He would bring it down upon His Son's back for you. He chose you in Christ then as 1 John 4 and verse 10 tells us, herein is, is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. The Father sent His Son. Not only in the covenant did He set forth His Son to be the representative of His people, to be liable for their sin, and then choose a people in Christ and put them into the hands of Christ, saying, Son, do all that is necessary do all that is needed to redeem them, saying, I will not spare you. One drop of wrath, do all that is necessary. He then sent His Son. And notice that word sent. 
Jesus came, but he was sent. He was sent by a loving Father. It's not only that Jesus came of his own volition, he did come willingly, but he was sent. The Father looked at you and he said, Son, go. He said, Son, go. Go redeem them. Go. Go humble yourself. Go become obedient to the death of the cross. Go suffer the pain of Calvary. Go. Go. Why? I love them. I love them. He really loves his people. And then Ephesians 1 and verse 7 speaks of the Father in the act of forgiving sin. It says, In Christ, the Father forgave us all trespasses. And it's speaking about the Father again there. If you look at the context, the Father. Father forgave your sin. He pardoned you. He knew all you've done, all your sin, the things that you keep hidden. You think of the things that would move him to wrath, move him to holy fury and anger, and he forgave you. He washed it all away. He buried it in the depths of the sea. He put them behind his back. Why? Through the blood of his son and according to the riches of his grace. He forgave us. And then the Father adopted us. 1 John 3 and verse 1. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Not only did he forgive and, you know, set you and I in Christ, but then he adopts us into his family that we might be near to him for eternity. That we might be given the rights and privileges of the sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we go, brothers and sisters, we go from being under wrath, condemned to an eternity in hell, under the fierce, almighty judgment of God to being joint heirs with Jesus. I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable. The Father loves, but then how does the Son love? The Son in that same covenant willingly set forth Himself to be the representative of His people. He heard the Father say, Son, I will spare no wrath. I will not let one drop of wrath fall on anything else but you. I will bring down my fury upon you. I will look at you as a mass of sin. You will, as a man, be forsaken by God. You will become guilty for the sins of these people. You will be humiliated and placed underneath your own law. And the son said, willingly, Father, bring all their sin. Pour out all your wrath. Lay it all upon me. I love them. The son was not forced he willingly gave himself. He willingly placed himself in the position of representative, of substitute. He would bear their guilt. He would bear their shame. He would bear their wrath. He would bear their hell. 
Jesus would be their covenant representative. And then he assumed their nature. This is beyond understanding that the Son of God, God, who is God, would take upon himself human nature. The Son, you understand, he looks at sinful humanity and he is revolted by it. And though he did not take upon himself a sinful humanity, he did enter into a world made up of sinful humanity. He came down to this earth. I mean, it's not, it's not merely that he saved us at arm's length. I mean, he came here. Jesus, he entered into history. God came to earth, taking upon himself a human nature, humiliating himself, leaving the atmosphere of the praises of heaven. Understand that the angels said, Glory, glory, glory to the Son of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We saw that in Isaiah 6. And now he comes to earth. And what does he get? Bidding on his face. That's what he gets. Leaves an atmosphere of glory, an atmosphere of praise, for an atmosphere of humiliation. He walked the dusty roads of Galilee. God. He was a babe in a manger. God. God is a babe in a manger. Such was Christ's love. For his people. He gave himself for them. Galatians 2.20 Who loved me and gave himself for me. Revelation 1.5 Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He gave himself In Gethsemane, he could have refused to go to the cross. When he looked at that cup of wrath, understanding that he would be alienated by his father, understanding that he would become, as a man, a mass of sin, he could have very easily said, my blood is not, they, they are not worth the payment of my righteous blood. Yes, he did it for the love of his Father. Yes, but he did it for you and for me. You understand that when Jesus was in Gethsemane, yes, loving the Father, he went forth. But it says he gave himself for me. What was on Christ's heart in Gethsemane? What was on Christ's heart as he walked to Golgotha? What was on his heart as he bled as a stuck lamb on the cross? What was on his heart as he was stripped naked, mocked by the jeering crowds? What was on his heart? You. It says he gave himself for me. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. What joy to have me, to have you. What love. 
He freely gave Himself. Freely. For you. And if you were the only one that He chose, He would have done it for you. You need to understand the very personal nature of this. Put your name there. He did it for you. He loves you so dearly. And so we see a God of great wrath, but we see a God of great love. On the cross, the Son gave Himself for them. And then finally, how does the Spirit love us? Well, the Holy Spirit loves us dearly. The Holy Spirit gave us new hearts, gave us a new birth. The Spirit of God who hates sin just as much as the Father and the Son came to live inside of us. The Holy Spirit lives in you, Christian. And He goes with you everywhere you go. And when you sin, no matter how revolting it is to Him, He never leaves you. He loves you. He cries out in you, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God witnesses to your adoption, crying out in you, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God assists you in your Christian life. When you're going through trials, it is the Spirit who comforts you, who wipes away your tears. When you're fighting temptation, you don't know what to do, it is the Spirit who strengthens you. It says, through the Spirit we do mortify the deeds of the body. It is a Spirit that assists us in prayer. We can't pray. He intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. It is the Spirit. Hebrews tells us a very interesting thing, that the Spirit actually took part in the crucifixion, that the Son was offered through the eternal Spirit. And so we understand that Christ, as a man, as the Messiah, was upheld by the Spirit in everything He did on earth, even the cross. Not only was the Father pouring out His wrath and the Son giving Himself, but the Spirit was upholding the Son as the altar upheld Isaac, as Abram lifted up his knife. The Spirit upheld Jesus. And the amazing thing is is that the whole Trinity is moved in love for you. It's moved in such deep, intimate, tender, glorious love. So why did God save us? Because He loved us. I read something of Thomas Chalmers he wrote this. Some years ago, he was lecturing and he said, In one home where I entertained was a dear little four-year-old whom I delighted to tease. One day I asked her, Are you worth anything? She said, No. And I asked, What's the use of keeping you then? Her little face grew dark and puzzled while she felt for an answer. Then she blurted out, Oh, I tell you why. Mother loves me. And Thomas Chalmers said, not an angel under the broad heavens could have given a better answer. Love, divine love alone makes us worth saving. Why are you worth anything? Because you're loved by God. 
And oh, that we would not only hear of this love and, and see it in the Word, but be gripped by it. And that when you go home this evening, you would know that you are loved, you are loved more than you could ever imagine, Christian. Nobody loves you like Him. Your husband, your wife, your mom, your dad, brother, sister, nobody loves you like Him. Whenever you doubt His, his love, remember the cross. Please remember the cross. Go to the cross. Even remember the Lord's table. Just this past trip I took to Pennsylvania, I felt cold in heart as I was going up on the plane, feeling my sin. You know how it is. And looking for some text or something that would assure me of God's love to my soul. And you know the funniest thing? What came to my mind was a picture of me holding the cup right here. And it was as if I could hear the words of Christ, not audibly, but he said to me, I love you. Because in that cup is my blood. I love you. He loves me. He loves you. Really loves you. And he's going to give you the world. Because he gave you his son. All is well with your soul. And the Lord bless his word to your hearts this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we have to say with Moses, who is a God like unto thee? Righteous in your wrath and holiness, and yet so, so loving, so tender. Father, pray that thou wouldst Fill thy people's hearts with a sense of thy love. O oh Lord, a preacher can say these things, but oh, that the Spirit of God would, would whisper these things to the souls of thy people. That as they go home in this week, they would know that they are loved by God. They'd be overcome at the fact that they are loved by God. Father, bless thy people for Jesus' sake. Amen.